Yo, hello, 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 everybody. Thank you for listening. This is opening set, season two, the final episode. And uh, thank you so much for rocking us this season. And uh, if you've been here since the first season, props to you. But uh, do not worry, we're already underway for season three. Uh, a little housekeeping as always. You can follow us on the opening set under Instagram, SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Music, all that good stuff. Shout out to my man, John Reyes, super producer, making this thing always sound right. And uh, today's very, very special guest is, man, we came with a big, big podcast energy. We got the one and only Mike B from Los Angeles. You don't love this. I'm really happy how this turned out. Shout out to him. But uh, if I had to kind of like sum up Mike B's accolades, yeah, uh, you know, he came up, I guess, under Stretch Armstrong, helped start the Banana Split Party with Stevie Oki and the late great DJ AM. He's a venue owner. And also, I, I really got to say, one of the most respected DJs of our era, not just in hip hop and electronic music, but just as an individual, uh, as a person. He's really just a, a treasure for us. He's just really about honesty and integrity. And he brings legitimacy to just a lot of uh, parties in just a lot of spaces. I can't do things that makes the numbers fake because if it's 64 listens, then it's 64 listens. And I know that like at that week, there are 64 people that actually give a shit what I did. I would rather know that than like have a PR agency and agents and like click farms and like whatever have and have my numbers looking great, but know inside that like... Like when you see something that has 20,000 listens and no comments, it's just, you know, uh, you <laughs> no one's of... listening to your music, dude. Like... <laughs> I just want to know what the facts are. I don't know that it's necessarily good no, it is. for me in my life, no, but it's good right. for my spirit and yeah. my brain. Uh-huh. Like I just, like I really don't exist well in like f- fakeness and lies. I try to never tell a lie. I never tell people that I can't make it. I tell people that I'm not going to make it. (laughs) Also in this conversation, we talk about his legendary night at Club Cheetahs in New York. Again, that's a name familiar if you're a Jay-Z Fabulous fan or a New York club rat from that era. Um, He has this amazing, amazing story that's never been documented, never been told, by the way, about him hanging out with Shaquille O'Neal and Peter Guns. Uh, with Stretch Armstrong in an airport, which blew my mind totally. And he also talks about going from a kind of virtual unknown to parties that are, aren't documented to being a celebrated DJ and playing in places and spots that are totally documented from photography, audio, etc. So aside from having just a great, great, great time talking to him and hearing all these great stories with, you know, noted people, I want to say that nightlife needs people like Mike B, 100%. There has to be that guy that's respected and admired and is just good at what they do. Because otherwise, I feel like nightlife and scenes and what have you just kind of fall apart and they wither away. You can follow our dude, Mike B, on Instagram, or I think all socials under the Mike B, T-H-E-E-M-I-K-E-B-D-J. And I uh, also see his website, themikeb.com. But if you listen to the podcast episode, you probably find out he doesn't really update it. But you can find him around. You can find him around from, that, you know, holy shit, the do-over, uh, his bar, The Friend uh, in L.A., and just anything or any place where it's really going on. All right, check it out. We go a little long, but trust me, it's a great episode. Once again, opening set, the final episode of season two. Thank you for listening. Uh, shout out to man John Reyes, making sure this thing always sounds right. Shout out to you, and be on the lookout for season three coming up, hopefully sooner than later. All right, folks, thank you very much. Stay in touch. Bye. <laughs> All right, what is up, everybody? Welcome to the opening set podcast, season two, episode. John Reyes, our producer. 
Season two, episode eight. All right, that's why you're here for, to keep me on track. This is King Most, your host. Very special guest today, a guy I've been trying to get. I actually wanted to ask you the first season around, but I wasn't here in LA, which we're recording from. Everyone, give it up for my man, Mike B. Hey. That's Air Hello. Horns, dude. Buongiorno. Buongiorno. DiGiorno. DiGiorno. Yeah, you just came from Italian food. so that I did just come from Italian food. You good? You're not going to fall asleep? Yeah. I had an Uber driver ask me about DiGiorno pizza the other day. Really? What'd you say? Like she hadn't said really a word. And we're about a block from my house. And then she just goes, have you tried that DiGiorno pizza? Uh-huh. And I was like, yes, I have. And I thought there might be some follow-up story. And she just said, well, it's pretty good. Did something about you give... You don't have DiGiorno vibes. That was it. And I was like, well, this is me right here. And she's like, okay. And then I walked out. I was like, why did she ask yeah, me Yeah, you're that? more like Red Baron. You give more Red Baron pizza That vibe. was my go-to as a, as a child. No, yeah. I, I like the CPK uh, thin crust. <laughs> okay. Were you a latchkey kid? That's... To be fair, I've never been 100% on the definition of latchkey kid. Okay. That's like a kid who opens the door for himself. I was a latchkey kid. It's like a kid who comes home, everyone's still at work, and you're like, all right, you got to kind of dig in the freezer and cook for yourself or go get your own food. Until oh, your no, parents no, come no. Home. I was definitely not a latchkey kid. Okay, but you just banged with uh, the Red Baron as a kid. That was your favorite thing. I wouldn't say it was my favorite thing, but I fucks with pizza. Yeah, who yeah, doesn't? Exactly. Only weirdos. It's there when you need it. Yeah, of course. It's like a good friend. It is. It's a real friend. So right before we started recording, uh, you know, we were kind of talking about questions. And I think I want to ask you, what is your version of L.A.? My you were version like, of L.A.? Currently, what is your role like in L.A.? Because I feel you're such an important part of L.A. You kind of connect to a lot of scenes. You're kind of like this Forrest Gump in a way. Of, you <laughs> you branch it. out kind of everywhere, but in a very cool, sincere way, though. I was born and raised in Los Angeles. But then I left L.A. when I was 18 to go to New York. And I was there for six years. I came back in 2003. And when I came back there was really not a lot going on. Like there was some stuff starting to happen in Hollywood, like mashups were like kind of a new oh, thing. Oh, I love this area. There was yeah, yeah, no yeah. dance music in Hollywood. All LA dance music was raves and undergrounds and stuff like that. And I was coming from DJing in New York like five or six nights a week. I came out to LA and was DJing you know, zero nights a week. But I was still buying records like I was like at any moment I was going to have to go DJ for six hours. But um, DJ Am was out here and he was just becoming who he would become. So he was just starting to have to like go to Vegas and stuff. So I would cover for him here and there at bottle service stuff. But it was the very beginning of bottle service too. Yeah. So it was still like you couldn't just get in because you were buying a bottle. It was a weird scene. But it was not very exciting. And there was no digital photography. There was no blogs. So... Essentially, the first like six or seven years of my DJ career, which are kind of the like ace up my sleeve, it's completely undocumented. Well, that's like, like there's I no ask recordings, yeah. there's no pictures, and no one really knows where I came from. So I kind of had the benefit of being like, who is this guy? Why is he such a good DJ? And like, why are these people here? to see him because like no one had really heard of me well uh, yeah I want to jump in real quick uh, you know just kind of do my research on you you really don't exist too much on the internet I mean you do like you have an Instagram you have the SoundCloud I did not... for like a minute like you the internet was my best friend I do have a website you do? leemikeb.com well, okay well did not show up it is a square space with like a, a picture <laughs> yeah. of me yeah and a like, store your... that has nothing for yeah, sale there's nothing uh, yeah. I saw like, your resident advisor your bio was like two I paragraphs. just made my resident advisor like three months ago yeah but again though I'm very slow to start doing stuff only because 
I always forget that like everyone's out to fuck you over, you know, and I really spent like so much of my life like manicuring my SoundCloud and making it perfect and making it great. And then in the great SoundCloud Holocaust of 2015, <laughs> yeah. I got my SoundCloud shut down, which was still to this day like tougher than any Yo, it was fucked up. breakup it was, it was or, bad. Or, or fight that I've ever had with any human person. Like uh-huh. I still have like trouble. Like I still think about that bitch, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, I think like about, oh, it was up there, and it was yeah. as a guy who exists late at night. It was nice if you're like stoned at four in the morning on a Wednesday, and you have a bunch of cool songs to make a DJ mix, post it, and go to sleep, and wake up and like five thousand people listen to it, and everyone's talking about it, and you're all getting reposted. Like that was really cool. Were you kind of just doing and that? It's at, just ripped away from were me. Were you just doing that uh, intentionally at a point, just like on some? You know, I'm gonna go get some five thousand plays real quick. Just for yeah. The fuck well, of it. it was really cool. Like I had a moment really where me and social media were wonderful. Like I feel like. When Twitter was new and like I still had a Blackberry and blogs were happening, like that was, I mean, if it wasn't for blogs, I'd be nowhere. I feel like that was the main difference. Dance music and hip hop and everything, you know, before the internet, everything was very segregated. I got my start as a DJ professionally playing black parties in New York. Being one of the only white people there, I would play in the second room. It would be like Funkmaster Flex or it's Goldfinger or Kid Capri or whoever kind of in the main room. And then I would be in the basement or the second room where you play like R&B and 80s and stuff and people like smoke blunts. Okay, hold up. There's like gems for days already. It's all so, over well, the place. Yeah. There's, there's, it's, I, yeah. It doesn't make sense to me. There might so. be a part two. So wait, so what is this club you're playing at when you're cutting your teeth in New York? That was my first real residency, <laughs> which was Club Cheetahs. The infamous Club Cheetahs. Club Cheetahs, as mentioned by Jay-Z and, yes. and Fabulous, et cetera. Yeah. Wow. Which okay. was a good gig. I mean, it was great. Okay. Can you paint the picture as best as you can? Yeah. I got the gig through the promoters, Adam Lublin and AJ Calloway, who was the host of 106 and Park. Wow. Uh, okay. I initially got the gig because I went to fill in for John Schechter a couple times, who used to do the basement of Club Envy. And then John Schechter's which was Source a, Magazine. John Schechter, founder of the Source Magazine okay. and uh, Game Recordings. Yes. And so much more. Yeah. One of my mentors. And um, he and Lord Sear used to play in the basement of Envy. But then he kind of realized he didn't want to really DJ. So then me and Lord Sear would do it. And then ultimately when they started a Friday night at Cheetah, they brought me in to do the basement room. Cheetah was, it was a large club. So the main floor would be usually DJ Goldfinger, who was one of the greatest of all times, who I learned a lot from watching. And that's like the main room. So it's like all guys in football jerseys spending like 25 grand a table. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> You're totally your scene. I was 19 years old <laughs> yeah, and I'm from Beverly Hills. So it was very much like not where I was supposed to be, which was the most interesting thing about it for me. All right, please jump back real quick. How did yes. you meet John Schechter? How did I meet John Schechter? Because that's a connect. I'm gonna, I let's say that's had a, a very fortuitous meeting in 1999 where my brother-in-law at the time, a guy who was married to my sister, was briefly managing Stretch Armstrong. And I was going to NYU film school. And I always told him, if you're ever in New York and with Stretch Armstrong and feel like you want to introduce me to Stretch Armstrong, that would be great. And he called me one night and said, hey, I'm at this bar and I'm with Stretch. Why don't you come down and meet him? And I was a 19-year-old college kid. So I had like crazy mutton chops and had been wearing the same T-shirt for a week and like big cargo pants. And and I went down there and sitting at the table was my brother-in-law, Stretch Armstrong, John Schechter, Paul Rosenberg, Mighty Mai, and Rob Reef Tulo. 
Reef was an A and R at Atlantic yeah. and a great producer. They were known as the Jewish Mafia. In the <laughs> Schechter had just recently sold his shares in the Source magazine. Stretch had just ended Dolo recordings and was about to start a new venture with Sony. Paul Rosenberg had just completed recording for the Slim Shady LP, which was set to drop like two months later. As far as I was concerned, Mighty Mai was the most famous guy at that table because <laughs> yeah. I like had high and mighty 12 inches. Yeah, so and we like, were just talking to yeah. Sonny James. He's from Philly about hip hop <laughs> right. and mighty. That's so weird. Anyway, so you're at... You see, so I'm meeting Mafia. all these guys at once and I don't know what I said or did that night. I talked to Stretch for 30, 40 minutes. I was very excited to be talking to him and we were just talking about rap and this and that and what do I think of this and have I heard of these guys? And he said, we're about to start a new label. Would you like to intern for me? You can just start next week. Like, just come by the office whenever you're not in school, and I'll give you a shit to do. And I was like, well, yeah, that sounds great. I went by a couple days later, and my very first job was he would give me dats of old recordings of Stretch and Bobito shows, and I would just kind of catalog them and say what was on them. And it was really, it was a great I was like, this is what I get to do. I get yeah, to sit here and listen to like yeah. rap freestyles and do all this stuff. Yeah. And over, you're in heaven. You're picking stuff. Yeah, yeah. So I did that for a summer. September came around and I had a thought. I was like, hey, man, like, I would love to not go back to school. And just, I said, you know, if you can pay me, I will not go back to school. And I can somehow convince my parents that this is okay. Back to NYU film school. Exactly. Uh, so I did it, and and I did it. I started getting paid to work for Stretch full time, as doing everything from A and Ring to organizing his vinyl and going through his promos, and that's how I learned how to use Pro Tools and running his studio. And I would make, I would edit clean versions for his radio show, and it was incredible. Like Premiere would come by and drop off CDs of music, yeah, and a gala, and all these guys. Like, yeah, well, yeah. you need to make edits of all these Gangstar and MOP records that are not out yet. And I was like, so I get to listen to these songs? Yeah, before I, before they came yeah, out. Yeah, and I had never seen a C. It's nineteen ninety nine. I never seen a CD burner, so I'm like burning <laughs> CDs and taking them home. Like, you guys, I made a fucking CD. Like, I have a CD. It's got Gangstar songs on it that you never heard. And uh-huh. My roommates are like, you got to be kidding. Was me. there anything that uh, never came out that? You... Oh, there's tons and tons of stuff. Oh. Shit. Shit. Yeah, you tell I've me got, there's like CDRs of unreleased gangstar songs. Oh well, not necessarily unreleased gangstar songs. Like oh. those eventually come out, but he was stretched, so he would get everything right. first. But there's definitely a lot of things that we recorded that never came out, freestyles and just sessions. And who has those? I do. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> yeah. I, okay. Um, I actually, but it's like things that are you know. Um, like tragedy, it's like, you know, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like unreleased tragedy and Royal Flush, and even people you never heard of, like Tracy Lee. I mean, everyone would come by that studio because he was Stretch Armstrong. The way I would say the timing of it is like if you watch the Stretch and Bobbito documentary, mm-hmm. and then like you keep watching like ten minutes after the credits, like yeah. that's when I would show up. Oh, okay, <laughs> like you got that. Right. So it was like they were splitting ways. From the time I got hired to work for Stretch, he maybe went and did like three shows on okay. KCR, and then but was doing Hot ninety seven full time. And you were, and that's so through this kind of whole amazing meeting with Stretch and doing good work. That's how you got placed into Club Cheetah, or you were, yes. you were already doing Club Cheetah, or then essentially, Club I was thrown into the very first gig I had. I was thrown into the fire, basically. <laughs> like Stretch just called me and was like, his flight had been delayed, and he just said, "You're a DJ, right?" And I was like, what is this? You're right? What is this right at the end? Well, it was like, I wasn't really. I mean, I had records and I was like, yeah, I'm a DJ, but I never DJed anywhere other than my college dorm room. I was 19 years old. 
And he's like, uh, well, I'm going to be late. I need you to go to this place, El Flamingo, and play, and I'll be there like shortly thereafter. So I got there at 10. I'm thinking he's going to be there at like 10.30. It was 11.30, and he's still not there. So I'm literally a 19-year-old, like unwashed. I've never been in a nightclub, and I'm on the <laughs> stage DJing. I've got half a crate of records of like, you know, Fat Beats, 12 Inches, and like a Nerd couple shit, random yeah. songs, and people are just like, I hate you. Also, I'm not a good DJ. Okay. You can only become a good DJ by DJing in nightclubs and sucking for a while, and then you get better. Yeah. It's like comedy. So I was sitting there, but then at a certain point, I did have back that ass up 12 inch. It was brand new at the time. And like, I definitely wasn't good at mixing or anything, but I I put that song on and like the 700 people or whatever who were in there were like, oh, fuck, yeah, finally. Like, this guy didn't do the worst thing. I'll never forget that reaction. And I, I feel like in that moment, I was like, okay, this is like, this is, I get it. This is so awesome. Yeah, was that your delightful like when you play a song that everyone wants to hear for the first time, like at the right moment, and like all of a sudden everyone's dancing and no one's looking at you with their arms crossed, uh-huh. it's a real good feeling. What'd you play after that then? Honestly, I feel like Stretch showed up like a couple <laughs> minutes later. <laughs> yes. Like I think maybe I played Bling Bling after or something. Okay. And then, like I, so I was like, okay, cool. Like they like cash money. I'm going to keep playing this. And then Stretch showed up and was like, oh, Jesus Christ, like get out of my way. And then started like doing his stuff. And that was one of the first times I got to really see him play. Okay. So then I would just kind of go around with him and. Be his guy. Be his right hand man. Well, yeah. You know, I carried crates. And then I carried crates for a lot of people. I carried crates for him. I carried crates for a guy named Joe I.E., who I believe is now the president of Def Jam. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> a lot of people. I like I how you're beca- unsure of that. Beca- I think he's Well, I don't know. There's all, like seven people I know have been the president of Def Jam. Yeah. Now, I mean, in this conversation, might be, be seven other people. But it, yeah. yeah. Pusha T, Rick Ross. Like, yeah. He was knows, like yeah. Funk Master Flex's right hand man. Okay. And so I used to carry his crates to Club Twilo on Saturday nights and then he didn't know anything about dance hall so he would let me play a half hour of dance hall like in the middle of his sets. And did you get that dance hall knowledge from Stretch? I did not. Okay. I was always a record buyer. Like I was multi-genre from the time I was born. Okay. Like I just liked so much different music. I always liked dance music. I always liked rap music. I always liked house music. I just like if something was funky and good like I liked it. But definitely growing up, like, scenes were very divided. Mm -hmm. So it was like I would go to punk rock shows and I would go to rap shows and I would go to raves, but it was very much with different groups of people. And none of them were friends with each other, but they were all friends with me. So it's, I mean, it's not unlike now, but at least now, like, people are aware of other things and, like, it's not so much just, like, well, house music is gay. You didn't talk about, like, house music at hip-hop clubs in New York. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was just... It was like a weird shame. But I was always doing that. You know, when I was buying hip hop records, I was also buying dance records. But I wasn't playing them for anyone. I was just collecting them. So the, the club cheetah. Were club you cheetah was <laughs> was just. It's where I ended up. That was my first one where I was hired just to play from 10 p.m. Like the average set in New York was 10 p.m. to 4 a.m. Okay. And, and you did the six. No, I did the six hours. Oh, okay, yeah. Okay, okay. In the second room. Okay. So upstairs would be Goldfinger, and then. Like flex, and then I was there for three years, so it, it changed hands a few times. But that was my first like, this is me, this is my room. Okay, and at that point, you already knew how to mix and program, and, and well, that was really where I got to learn how to do it. Okay, a lot of moments where you you kind of like fucked up and like, oh, oh, sure, but you're in the second room, so the stakes are lower. Okay, like when you did have a dance floor, it was like 15, 20 people, but it was mostly blunt smoking and fingering and like. 
and you know dark corners for people to make out in and it's like a vibe it's like people just yeah, mellow out it's like you meet a girl upstairs and it's like yo let's go downstairs and smoke a blunt and canoodle and mm-hmm. I like that word canoodle yeah it's canoodle we gotta bring that stuff. back man yeah but I had a lot of wild experiences in there uh-huh. um, and a lot I met a lot well, of feel free to share this is a podcast sure I mean over the course <laughs> of three years I mean you know New York DJ booths at that time were very weird like they were all set up like it was studio 54 so you had like three turntables that were bouncing on rubber bands that are all like four feet apart from each other and then you had a rotary mixer that's like way over to the right usually no crossfader and then there would be like a reel to reel and maybe like a denon rack cd player in this little 15 20 person rooms give or take well the room fit a couple hundred people i'm talking like dancing at any time i had 15 or 20 so it was okay that i wasn't the best dj yet okay but Playing somewhere every week for six hours for three years, like you just you you have to get you get <laughs> yeah, better. You, you get, so. yeah, like yeah. when I started, I was terrible, yeah. and when I was done, I was the fucking best. Yeah, <laughs> like I was so good. I by mean, the time four, I was four, done, if there, you did like, every week, four times six, you just exactly. practice twenty four hours yeah. in a month. That's, and also yeah. after like a six months to a year of doing that, I was now getting gigs at other places. So okay. that's like ninety nine. I started there. By the time it was two thousand one, I was playing like six hours a night, like five or six nights a week. Hmm. You know, this whole era of like bottle service in New York, I've always like fantasized about Well, this is pre-bottle service. Oh, this is still like pre-bottle service. Bottle service came from like, basically like the drug dealers and the ballers and the guys that would have tables. Like they didn't want to get up and go get drinks. So it'd be like, just bring me a bottle. Okay. And then... Dude, that's that's how bottle service started? Yeah, pretty much. Or you would get given a bottle. Okay. Because there was also a thing at those clubs where it was like, Sub promoters, there were guys, people who worked at modeling agencies, people who had hot girlfriends. Like those clubs were making a lot of money. So it was nothing to tell someone, hey, I need you to bring like 10 hot chicks here every Friday night. I'm going to reserve a table for you. I'm going to give you $1,000 and a bottle of liquor. And like that was kind of how it started. Wow. So, like, so this whole business model. Bottle service was initially like a gift. It was like, here's a bottle. And like, yo, so that you don't have to like go walk around. Like you tip the waitress once, you give her like a hundred bucks, and then like you just sit there and make your own drinks. So this them. entire business model that is like that's made millions, if not a billion dollar firm, started because drug dealers and models didn't want to get up and walk across the room. Yeah. Well, it was also just a sign of like, I'm yeah. someone dope in the club. Like, I, there's a rope in my area. You can't come back here. And also, like, I'm making my own drinks. Like, this is my world. I kind of thought it was like club owners figure out they could rent this real estate. And then it happened to be that it was a money maker. Well, it I, slowly I, became out, yeah. a thing where it was a way to get in because promoters would say, you can't come in. Or if you want to buy a table and a bottle, it's like it was a way of getting someone to give you like a thousand dollars up front to, for them to get into a club that was hard to get in. And this all started in front of your eyes pretty much. Pretty much. Yeah. I saw it happen because it used to be a thing where you would get there was drink tickets and then there was a bottle ticket because in New York there would be like the main promoter, but then there'd be like 12 or 13 sub promoters. Like everyone was supposed to bring 20, 30 people. And those guys all got like a hundred bucks. But if you were on the higher end of that, you would get, a bottle ticket. So it was like you could get a full bottle of liquor. They only started pricing them so high because they started pricing them by, well, one bottle of vodka is this many drinks and this many drinks is, you know, $12 times this many. So a bottle of vodka is 500 bucks because that's how much we would make if we were selling it as individual drinks. So the prices were just kind of made up and then it it turned into what it turned. I mean, in the words of Stretch Armstrong, bottle service 
ruined New York City. That was kind of just starting when I left. Like I left New York in 2003. It was still a really, I think, exciting club scene. It was like the very beginning of a lot of stuff, like what became known as open format, where you were playing rock records alongside hip hop records and kind of everything that like Mark Ronson and DJ AM and Stretch did in the early 2000s that became this thing yeah this thing and crowds are totally open they're like yo let's i'm down with hearing you know ghostface killer and rolling stones missing you well you had to know where you were and what you were doing like on any given night i would be playing different stuff in different places Uh like people were doing rock nights it was a really kind of cool exciting time and it was like a weird race to see like what kind of weird rock 12 inches you could get i remember dj riz showing up and being like, I got a Kansas carry on wayward son, 12 inch. And it's like, well, that's really cool. Like what the fuck? You're not going to do anything with it. You're certainly not going to play it tonight. But it was like, we would show off 12 inches to each other. Pause. And uh, it was a, (laughs) I think that's funny because also at this time, early 2000, you had like, you know, LCD sound system and electro clash and dance rock. Well, that's what was happening right when I left. I remember my very last night in New York city, I went out, to see Stretch play, and he played House of Jealous Lovers. I'd heard wow. of The Rapture, but I'd never heard House of Jealous Lovers. And uh-huh. he played that in a set, and it had like, yeah. it was like house music, but it was funky, and it was rock, and it was crazy. Was like screaming, I remember coming yeah. back to LA and thinking like, this is what's exciting. Like This is what I wanna get into. And that next couple years was crazy. Like Stretch would come out to LA, I would go out to New York, and we would we were just looking for weird records that no one was playing that you could play like things that were danceable and accessible but that was new Mm -hmm. and so it was kind of a cool kind of underground open format so you could play it alongside like up-tempo rap records or disco yeah just finding like you could play like missy lick shots into daft punk into the rapture into acdc into the white stripes and like like there was a way to do it and make it sound cool, mm-hmm. which you know made way for everything that happened all through the mid two thousands, and then ultimately became, I guess, what's known as Bloghouse. So okay. you let, you decided to leave New York because you're just over it, or uh, mommy? Dad I left New York back, for or? a number of reasons. Um, my brother was having a kid. Uh, my little sister was wayward, mm-hmm. and I felt that I had earned my stripes. Like I had become a respected DJ in New York. It was wild. Like I was working alongside Stretch and Mark Ronson and Kid Capri. And it was like Chuck Chill Out was trying to undercut me for my gig. And like, it was crazy. It was a wild place to be because it's like people that I grew up listening to are now either my peers or people that are like trying to get my job. And AM was out here, like AM and Adam 12 were doing their thing out here and I knew them, but I felt like I wanted to take what I had learned and what I knew and just all of these things that I wasn't supposed to get. Like I went to New York to go to film school and then come back and presumably work in Hollywood. But I ended up, you know, like stashing rappers guns at my house and being a party to wild stuff and and like working with like Royal Flush and Tragedy and, and all these people that like Queensbury is like yeah, hard people body that rap I grew dude. up listening yeah. to 
who did, I never thought in a million years that I would ever be, not even just around it, but like a functioning part of that world where I was like friends with these guys and, you know, smoking blunts with them and like, yo, I'm going to jail tomorrow. Let's get high. Like, it was just like, really? Like, that's what Royal Flush said to me? That's crazy. <laughs> well, I mean, that, that's a big light of, you know, incarceration, especially. Of, of I'm that, not making that, no, but I mean, that's, that's a very yeah, real story. Yeah, like, it's a very And I just remember thinking, like, I had this guy's tape when I was 15 years old. Uh huh. And he's literally going to prison tomorrow, and he's choosing to spend like his last few hours like smoking weed with me and my college roommates. This is crazy. I felt like I could take this. I wanted to bring it back to my hometown. Like I felt like it was a wide open space because LA is so huge. There's so much room. You can try to do whatever you want with Los Angeles. It's just like a big moldable pile of clay. It's just a matter of like timing and doing the right thing, and I just felt like it was open. Like, nothing like what I was doing was happening in L.A., so I wanted to see what would happen. So before we start the L.A. chapter, give us uh, a New York story that won't get you uh, incarcerated, anybody else incarcerated, that you, that you may have oh, not man. heard. I mean, there's so many of them. I mean, I, I wouldn't even know where to start. Well, you know what we should do is, Stretch just tweeted the other day. The Newark Jashak thing? Yes. I was about to ask you, you about that. You want to talk about Let's that? Let's fucking talk Let's about that. that. Because right. he tweeted about that, and the story's never been told on the record. Okay. But it was definitely the craziest shit. This basically happened right after Stretch decided that I was going to be working for him full time. And to celebrate that, you know, he was a big DJ at the time. So anytime he got flown out to DJ somewhere, he would get a plus one, which was really cool. And I had seen all these other people be his plus one in his time as an intern. Yeah. And then now, like, he was just like, yo, I'm going to Vegas next week to play Magic for the Triple Five Soul Party. Like, roll with me. And I was like, oh, like, fuck yeah, like, this is happening. So I'm 20 years old at this point. We're going to Vegas. So we go to Newark Airport. We're on Sun American Airlines. I'll never forget this. It's terrible airlines, very short-lived. And we get there, and it's like the flight is delayed like five hours or something like that. Like it was just, it was no joke. And we're like all the way out in Newark. It's raining, and it's all bad. And then I had, uh, my father had given me, I remember, he said he gave me his TWA uh, first-class lounge card. And he's like, you know, if you're ever in the airport, you can use this. You can go hang out in the lounge. So I just had it in my wallet. And then so I said to Stretch, I was like, the TWA first class lounge is right there. Let's just go in there and chill. You know, we can get free cheese and what have you. So we go in there. I go, oh, shit, there's Shaquille O'Neal. And this is maybe two or three months after he had won the first L.A. championship with Kobe. So this is August 1999. I'm like a huge Lakers fan. There he is. And Stretch goes, he's with Peter Guns. Because that was his best friend. He's like, I know Peter Guns. Like, let's go meet Shaq. So we go up to them. And Stretch is like, yo, Peter, you know, what's good? Da, da, da. And then, uh, you know, we meet. This is Mike. And then uh, Shaq kind of introduced himself. He goes, yo, you're Stretch from Stretch and Bobito? And we're just like, yeah. And he's like, oh, man, like. Instantly takes out his two-way pager. We're all beaming each other, two-way contacts. It was crazy. It was really wild. And so then we go and sit kind of on the other side of the lounge. And then our two-ways go off. And we each had a page from Shaq that said, let these motherfuckers know that I'm the illest b-ball player on the mic. And then he was like reading a magazine and he saw that we had checked the text and he he pulls down the magazine and kind of has his eyes and he kind of nods at us. And we're just like, oh my God. 
And he's like, yo, come on over here. He starts showing us his CD collection. <laughs> and we're now just like hanging with Shaq and uh-huh. Peter Guns. What was, in, and the, what was in the, the CD thing? If you It was literally like 500 CDs. Okay. I specifically remember that like Tony Touch the Peacemaker was on, like it had just come out. Like he had every rap CD that had come out in the last four years was in, <laughs> in, his, in, in his gigantic his, folder. His gigantic <laughs> case logic folder uh-huh. that he was flying with. It's not yeah. even his check luggage. Like he needed to bring this. <laughs> this is the fortuitous occasion is that it gets to be like midnight. They come in, they say that we're closing the lounge. And Shaq is like, nah, don't make me go out there. You know, there's like 500 people out there and I'm Shaquille O'Neal. Like I'll be in alive. And they're like, well, this is Newark. Like, fuck you, Shaquille O'Neal. Like, get the fuck out of here. Like, go out there. And so he walks right out there. He just gets mobbed. Can I take a picture? Take a picture? Take a picture? And he has to just say no. Otherwise, he's going to be sitting there like a standee just taking pictures and pictures. And so that's instantly alienating. Like, this is everything he didn't want to happen. So everyone now hates Shaq. And Shaq is there, but everyone's watching Shaq. And so a lot of the gates were closed because it's pretty late. So he's like come on, we're going to go hang out over there. And so him and Peter Guns and, and Shaq's cousin start walking over there, and then he's like, you're stretching Mike, like you're coming with us, right? Uh-huh. We're like, oh yeah, of course, naturally, Shaq, yeah, we're, we're going with you. Yeah. And so there's basically us sitting at this closed gate with all the space in the world, and then 500-something people on the other side of the terminal just like in silence staring at us. Oh, God. <laughs> Which is great. Right? I'm just like, hey, man, this is my best friend Shaquille O'Neal. <laughs> also Stretch Armstrong and Peter Guns. Yeah. Why, why not? What the fuck, dude? Yeah. So this is my life. We need to animate this, yeah, like by the way. Everything's, <laughs> yeah. It's all happening. Yeah. Also, uh, this is, we haven't even gone on a play. Like, I'm headed to Vegas. I'm uh-huh. 20. Oh, so, oh yeah, I forgot. Yeah. You're, still going to, you're still going to Magic. <laughs> yeah, there's so much yeah, more. Yeah, yeah. So basically, we're there, and then this is when, I want to say the man was Shaquille O'Neal's cousin. At least that's what he was introduced to us as, who, as I understand it, his job was to entertain Shaq in times of boredom. So I sat and watched this man make more money than most people make in a year doing ridiculous stuff. Shaq would basically be like, I'll give you $5,000 if you go over there uh, to the microphone and tell everybody all flights are canceled. (laughs) You know, this is pre-9-11 airport, so it's just everyone's fucking just doing whatever they want. Yeah. So the guy just walks up to the mic, oh, sorry, everybody, all flights are canceled, and Uh everyone's getting all upset, and Shaq's rolling around on the floor, laughing hysterically, grabbing me and Stretch by the leg. Like, I remember specifically, he had his hands on one of each of our ankles, and he's looking up, and I was going, ah, (laughs) rolling around on the floor, and me and Stretch are looking at each other like, this is really happening right now. Like, Shaquille O'Neal's making physical contact with our ankles. He's on the floor, and he's staring at us laughing hysterically. And Peter Guns. And that guy just got $5,000. Peter Guns is like listening to his headphones. Like, he's, is, he's checked yeah, out. This, this is his this everyday is Tuesday life. For him. Yeah. This is Tuesday, yeah. He's just doing his thing. Yeah. And then the guy's, you know, I'll give you ten grand. you go run around the terminal barking like a dog. We watched <laughs> all this happen for a while. Uh-huh. The reason Shaq was here was because his jet was a timeshare, and he had run out of hours, uh-huh. and he was supposed to take his jet to get to Magic, to go to... Oh, the, he was going to Magic, too. Yeah, to do the Twism booth. <laughs> Twism, it was yeah. his clothing line, <laughs> exactly, right? Exactly, yes. yes. Twism was Yeah, the world, the world is mine. That's what it stood for. Yeah. <laughs> wow, 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 um, wow, wow. So he was going to do the Twism booth, and so he had to get to Vegas, and he had just, like, I guess they got to Newark, and it turned out, like, the next guy needed the jet, and he needed to get on this Sun America flight. He starts showing us pictures of what he's been doing. He's been hunting in Florida, which was like 
him and his friends using handguns to kill livestock or some such. It was very peculiar stuff. Like really strange pictures, just like him and like a farmer and like a Glock and like some cattle. It's a nice just like, what do you got? Yeah, it was just okay, cool. This is what you've been doing with yeah. with your championship. And it, it was really cool. He played us some demos. How um, are they? They were fine. It was like him fine. and Mastakilla and him. I mean, you've heard Shaq rap, I'm sure. It's, yeah. It's, it's, like it's a Vanny project. Yeah. yeah. He, I mean, he genuinely loved it. He was a lovely guy. He was nothing but funny and cool to us. And he was a fan of stretches. He had no idea who I was. Very nice to me. Yeah. And this went on and on. And by some stroke of luck, uh, by the time it came time to board the flight, we get a call and it's like, Mr. Bartos, Mr. Brillstein, please come up to the desk. And they're like, you guys have been upgraded to first class. Now, I don't know if this had been arranged by Shaq or what I have to assume, but also we had been, we had checked in and we'd been at the airport for like longer than anybody. But first class ended up being <laughs> this group of people. So it's me, Shaq, Peter Guns, Shaq's cousin and Stretch. Oh, and Shaq's like cousin. One yeah. other person. Yeah. And that was first class. Uh-huh. So pretty much everyone fell asleep, except for Shaq and I. I remember that we both watched The Skulls was the movie, the Joshua Jackson uh, classic, The Skulls. And I remember not enjoying it and taking the headphones off, and I was ready to make like snarky film school comments to Shaq, and he's like, yo, that shit was crazy. (laughs) And he loved it, and I'm like, yeah, it was crazy, Shaq. And then he showed me some more CDs. I remember this, and we talked about Nas for a while. And then we got to Vegas, and then that was basically that. And his parting words to us, I will never forget. It was like a, we were like a pair. So he just goes, uh, "See you later, Stretch and Mike." <laughs> <laughs> and then we walked off. And uh, for like a week later, Stretch got many two ways from him, just like, "Don't forget, you know, I'm sending you the tracks." And da da And it was always, always really exciting. And we would like. When the season started again, we were like sending him two ways, like "Yo, kill it on the court tonight." Ah. We never, <laughs> we never really heard back. Break from a leg. Him. you know that was it. Yeah, but that was, I mean, all, all said and done, it was probably like a nine or ten hour experience of really just like being in real close quarters and very friendly with Shaquille O'Neal and Peter Guns and Peter Guns. Yeah, let's not forget Peter. Guns. Let's forget. <laughs> Oddly enough, Peter Guns much less involved in the conversation than Shaq. Like Peter Guns was just kind of doing. Like, he was there. He was very yeah. quiet. Very cool. When Shaq says "Take it easy, stretch your mic," were you like, "All right, Shaq and Peter," or were you? What'd you say? We Thanks. just smiled at each other. Yeah. Like <laughs> fucking Shaq knows our names, you know? Yeah, for at least the next few weeks. And yeah. was, I remember thinking, like, oh, we gotta find the Twism booth tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, yeah we yeah, gotta I'm about go. to say. What, what, See, what is but there's, you know, there's no. This is again. This is the time where there's. I didn't even have a cell phone. Like, never mind a camera phone. We didn't have digital cameras. We certainly weren't going to go buy a camera at the gift shop and try to take a picture. Like, you just had to, like, enjoy the experience, you know? And so when Stretch brought it up the other day, I mean, it all came flooding back to me. Because my memory is kind of a steel trap. As you can tell, I really remember, like, all these weird details. It has to do with not really drinking. Yeah, I would remember fucking hanging out with Shaq, too. Yeah, Just to let you know. Not not to take away credit for you, but yeah, that is a kind of But it was like a... It's a thing where, yeah, Stretch brought it up the other day because he's been, you know, really going down memory lane and doing his NPR show and telling a lot of stories. And I think for the first time in his life, he's ready to kind of like look back at stuff. One of the things that I learned and admired most about Stretch was he was never trying to do like whatever was last year. Like he got a lot of shit for it from a lot of people, you know, like if he used to play your record and then now he didn't, people were like, oh, Stretch switched up and, you know, Stretch like isn't down, doesn't keep it real anymore. But he was just, he just always wanted to be 
doing something exciting. I think if you come from where he came from and you're the guy that broke Biggie and Mob Deep and Red Man and, and Wu-Tang Clan and all this stuff, it's like you don't want to just sit there and like bask in it the rest of your life. You want to find the next thing and you want to keep going. And that's what brought him to electronic music, which was where we were able to still continue to do stuff together because he stepped back down. Like he knew when it came to dance music that he wasn't going to be headlining and that his name didn't carry as much weight. And it was kind of cool to come from a place of being his intern to his employee, to his friend, to now we were peers, like both kind of like looking for music together, DJing parties side by side, Mm -hmm. both not making very much money, but doing cool, exciting stuff. He would come out to LA and stay on my couch and we'd go record shopping and it was, he's he's an amazing guy. Like obviously, you know, really interesting guy and we all know what he did for hip hop and everything, but his own kind of, I think, arc as a DJ is really interesting because, you know, once they made the movie and him and Bobito, now it's a good time for him to look back and say, okay, like, my life has been amazing and I'm going to talk about it. Really, until now, it's really, he's never stopped kind of being like, what's the next thing? Mm-hmm. Which I always thought was amazing. So you which t- I try to apply to my own life. Yeah, so you took this whole crazy energy, like, you know, the, the countless cheetah stories and the countless shack in the airports and all these things, and you took all this kind of potential and momentum back when you came back to L.A. I and mean, did you hit the ground running, or you kind of like, okay. I certainly tried to. I mean, mm-hmm. I hit the ground like running into nothing. I would go and jump on for a half hour here and there with AM. I would fill in for him when he was gone. Mm-hmm. I got my first weekly because I played an MC Breed record, and it turned out the guy who owned the club was named Chris Breed, and he was like, <laughs> this is MC Breed. My name is Breed. I, I, you know, cocaine's a hell of a drug. Yeah, okay. So he's like, you know, <laughs> hey, you're going to come back All and play right, for me yeah. every week. I'm my favorite DJ because MC Breed. And yeah. And then so I found myself kind of back in the same world that I was in in New York, which was playing, you know, at the time what were known as urban nights in L.A. And I was doing two or three nights a week of the same thing, like open to close, pretty much straight up hip hop sets with like a little bit of this and that thrown in. And you were the lone white guy in there. I was the lone white guy. Okay. I came from a place where like you did not share your night. You know, like, it's like, I only have six hours to play. Like, you can't come in and play for a half hour because I need six hours. I need six hours to play yeah, hip-hop. Like, well, I need, you know, to play every R&B remix from the mid-90s, and then I need to do this much reggae and this much old-school stuff, and you better not play 50 Cent because I need to play the whole album. And I didn't realize it at the time, but that's not a great way to make friends. <laughs> hey, can I come DJ with you? No. Yeah. I did that for years. So then you go and you're trying to like kind of find your groove in L.A. And did you want to kind of do something else or you're like, I'll just take... I was going to be a TV producer. You're already like, DJing's done, I'm going to go produce. Well, me and the promoters from Cheetah, Adam Lublin and AJ Calloway, formed a partnership and had a, a TV production company. And that was also one of the things that brought me back to L.A. was to... The idea was, you know, I could still DJ for cash, but they would be in New York and I would be in L.A. We signed a handful of comedians and stuff and had some scripts. And uh-huh. We were trying to sell TV shows. Are you still involved with TV at all? No. You never? I mean, no, I left TV in 2007. Okay. Oh, so you you still spent some years in TV. I did. Okay. I finally got a show on the air and I fucking hated it and I didn't enjoy life and I, and I quit. Uh, it was a show called Snoop Dogg's Fatherhood. It was a reality show. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> Wait up. So you are responsible for Snoop Dogg's reality show. Okay. I am not responsible well, you're, you're part for of the it. I was a producer on it. Okay. Um, me and my partners Do people uh, know this? made it. 
I mean, they can go on IMDb. Uh, <laughs> All right. I, I'm not proud of it because it's a shitty show, but it's what made me realize that I wanted to DJ full time because one day I came home and I was personally angry with Snoop because I was trying to get him to do something. He didn't want to do it, and he called me a name, and I got home, and I was like, I'm going to go out tonight, and I'm not going to do that whole routine with all the Snoop songs because I was still – that was – kind of what I knew was even after 16 hour days on set, like six days a week and producing a TV show and making a ton of money, I would come home and like take my sweater off and then grab my crates and like go DJ for like a couple hundred bucks. Cause I would feel better going back to work in the morning, having done that than if I just sleep and wake up and go back to work. Yeah, Cause I was still, yourself. yeah, I would go out drink like three Red Bulls and like maybe make out with somebody. And like, I was like, I would only sleep three hours, but I was, much more smiley in the morning than the people who like uh-huh. you know and you, got you, yelled at and went home and then woke up and got yelled at again. Yeah. So were you, like, but were you playing Snoop at the time or no? You kind of in your sets. Were you oh like, sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, I was just doing I was doing a lot of streetwear stuff. Oh my god, you part of that lane too? That's right. That's yeah, Fairfax shit. Yeah, yeah. So Jesus I was doing Christ, stuff with dude. the. At the I was, <laughs> this might be a part two. <laughs> I was doing stuff with the hundreds. Yes, and, that's right. And, and Huff, and that was all new. Like Fairfax was brand new. I was doing a party at National. It was a weekly party on Fridays with Brooklyn Projects and Kendo. It was the only party where like, I could play Mob Deep and Dance Hall and kind of all the New York stuff. Yeah. It was like 2005 to 2007 or so I did that. And it was like, I remember like Kanye would be there in the game and it was like when skaters and rappers kind of like, it was like, when, wear, it was yeah. like when Lil Wayne started wearing diamond shirts, like all that yeah, stuff kind of yeah, started happening. Yeah. And like Nick Diamond was very much a part of it and... Like a lot of guys that are, you know, big deals now. We're all yeah. kind of there with us. Like Supreme Store was just opened. Turntable Lab. Turntable Lab. Yeah. Turntable Lab coming to LA was a very, very important part of what I became, I think. Mm-hmm. And what was well, that? That was 2005. And Turntable Lab had just opened before I left New York. Mm-hmm. And that scene, that whole kind of Diplo, kind of like underground open format thing was just starting and I thought it was so cool. Like, yeah, same here. I like when Diplo era. did his fabric mix and he was playing like solid groove into Aphex Twin into the percolator and and MIA and all that stuff. Like it was like, oh like anything's possible. Like this is so cool. Like you can do shit that's legitimately cool mm-hmm. and like still get gigs. Mm-hmm. That was like your lightning rod. Like yo Well this. yeah I was like this is something. Mm-hmm. Like I like what Diplo was doing at the time you know, for better or worse, people have all kinds of things to say about him. Yeah. I, I like him very much. I respect him very much. I should say him and Low Budget, Hollertronics. Yeah. What they were doing with their party, which would become Bloghouse, you know, just playing like cool new dance records, classic house music, acapellas. down south rap, throwing acapellas over it. And, you know, I think probably most importantly, the introduction of Baltimore Club into internet culture and and stuff like that was really exciting. Yeah. Because it was finally like, I can take all of these things that I've been compartmentalizing my whole life and figure out a way to make them fit together. Like I can play Daft Punk and 3-6 Mafia and Slick Rick and Basement Jacks and the White Stripes and the Rapture in one set and like the same people will dance the whole time. And this was like, okay, my life hasn't all been for nothing. Like, it felt like coming out of the closet. Like, that was <laughs> really what my blog was, was like, I have all of this house 12 inches. Yeah, oh and shit. I was just ripping them and putting them up. And, like, the house DJs were commenting on it. Like, it was basically 
the first time that it was put on display, kind of like what my various like epic cosigns were, I would post a record and the comments would be from Paul Rosenberg and Stretch and Junior Sanchez and DJ Vice and Mark Ronson, all these people that had become big and had been my peers and friends in a world that no one knew about was now like for everyone to see on the internet. Uh-huh. And it was, <laughs> yeah, there's some irony because again, you're so kind of on the fringe outlier of the internet. Well, yeah, I am the, now. Yeah, but because the it's become point. an invasion of privacy. Okay. At the time, it was a way to finally be able to kind of explain yourself to people without having to be in the same room as them. Like if it wasn't for my blog spot, like I definitely, I mean, that's what brought me to Europe. That's what, because that was, it all happened together at the same time. Basically the beginning of what would become the party that was banana split, me doing my blog, which led to Ellie and Rockticon and Stretch and those guys doing their blogs. It was like a, you know, kind of a unit. And then like, uh, there was a lot of like, ripples from like butterfly effect stuff from that and yeah. then also the hollerboard the cobra yeah there was the and simultaneously with the hollerboard where you could make something and people were now digitally djing on serato so it wasn't like if you made a cool mashup you didn't have to press a thousand copies and mail them out to people like yeah. you could now make something and put it on the hollerboard and the next day like they're playing it you yeah. know, in London clubs and yeah, stuff. Fluo kids have and, it, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Fluo kids. Yeah. And like, so I'm taught, and then those guys are, are messaging me and I'm talking like, that's how I met U-Turn who's in Vancouver. So yeah, everyone's in, yeah, yeah. in different little pockets or there was like corporate blogging, which was strip Steve. He was like yeah. 17 years old at the time. And even, you know, Ed Banger and all that stuff. Like it was really, you now didn't have to meet someone to be their best friend. Like, Everyone was talking every day and sending each other music and just zip. Like, here's a hundred of the best house records ever made. Like, send me all the best Baltimore records. And here's all this New York hip hop. And here's unreleased Mob Deep freestyles. And people were finding ways to... So it was like a blissful time for you. Yeah, it was great. And also, I was like cohabitating with my girlfriend. We'd been living together for three years. And I was doing TV during the day. So like, being at home and on the internet and having it be this exciting was perfect. Uh-huh. I'm, were you a computer guy before this or not really? I mean, I got like the internet in 2000. Like I got like a laptop in the internet. I'm like just starting to understand it. I was yeah. teaching myself HTML like as I'm doing <laughs> posts. Like, you know, how do I make it so that when you click on the name that it goes to the Z-Share link of the song and, and, and stuff like that? Yeah, you just said Z-Share. I used to think about this a lot. Like I wonder and I kind of feel bad all like the great mixes that disappeared once the Z-shirt, all like the massive Z-shirt. Like it's almost like, you know, uh, when like the great library room got burned down. Like, sure. It's kind of a little bit of like that. Yeah. Were you good still, at- I mean, I was cl- I've clicked dead Z-shirt links as recently as two weeks ago. And when you're, like, you're just, just looking for old stuff and like, you find crossed, a blog and it's oh, a link man. and it's like, oh, please don't be like a mega upload or a Z-shirt. You yeah. Know, and just it, hoping for a media fire. Yeah. Were you a bit of a hoarder, like a digital hoarder? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, wow. There's I- more like unlistenable garbage in, in my computer than oh, okay so that's not gonna be a next i phase. rarely delete anything i mean there's like you know hundreds of thousands of songs in there there's just okay because i wanted it I, I had to have it all yeah i was coming from a place where i was spending two three hundred bucks a week on vinyl you know and you weren't paying, even djing you you're were paying just... 10 bucks to have one song i'm djing this whole time oh no but even before you say you were just a record collector before you started djing oh yeah I, yeah so that, you, yeah. it was just in your bloodstream right and also as kind of a night owl and an obsessive music shopper, someone who would like park outside Tower Records at 8.30 in the morning and smoke weed till they opened at 9 and I could go in and start consuming music. 
the whole blog thing was amazing because I could go music shopping anytime. And there's new music coming out every night of the week at every minute. Yeah, literally. Yeah, yeah. So just sit there and you just download and download and yeah. download and download. So you have this, like, this beautiful, great, blissful run of the internet. And did it ever kind of hit a wall where you're like, ugh, like I'm over this. You had to kind of like step back or even to this day, are you still like consuming <sighs> no. just as much? I think I don't consume as much music. I try to and it's a little bit more boring. And I don't think it's because of the music. I honestly... I'll never say like music's not as good as it used to be because music is music and music is great. The problem is I've heard every song ever made up until now. <laughs> so it's harder to get excited. And a lot of people do the wrong thing and blame the music. Nah. And they say, you know, like rap is bad. And I'm like, that's crazy. Like 10 albums have come out since you said the words rap is bad. Surely one of them is good. But it moves at such a rapid rate. And also I'm 40 years old and like, there comes a point where you can't have a fresh opinion just because when I hear something, I have to compare it to everything I've ever heard in my whole life because it's there. Like I can't eternal sunshine <laughs> the fucking 200 songs that I, you know, the bad like white Baltimore club songs that I downloaded from the hollerboard. Like they're just in there. Yeah. Like they're stuck there. Well, they also, in terms <laughs> of so it, yeah. it becomes noise. Like it's hard to tell what I like and what I don't like. Like, the only thing I can really truly tell now is when a song is like truly exceptional. We feel like it's more rare, but it's just that there's so much more stuff in between. It's more static. Yeah, you know, like there used to be like 12 albums a year that you would really listen oh, to, it's like and now it's like 12 albums a week. No, yeah. not even that. There's 12 albums on Bandcamp alone today. So then, like I feel yeah. like the new Shaka Khan stuff, when I hear that, I'm like, this is crazy. Yeah. But yeah. also, that's what you have to do, I think, to be exciting now is to make something with Shaka Khan. Yeah, like, <laughs> you know, like, yeah that's Switch, like, right? That's, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But also, like, on the same token, like, if it was on the radio and I didn't know that it was Shaka Khan, like, maybe I wouldn't... It's, it's hard to say. Like, I think it's great, but, you know, that's what I would say. I feel like I've kind of gone back to just party-rocking DJing. I had, like, an epiphany, like, seeing Rich Medina play a couple years ago in New York. Mm -hmm. He's obviously a great DJ. I know yeah. he said he's been on the show, and mm -hmm. he's, like, a... Uh, He's like everyone's big bro. He is. Yeah. We were just he talking something before this and he gets He's a great a person. Yeah. Um, I went on tour with him with the do-over and we became very close and he's just such a smart, cool guy and a great DJ. And I was watching him play at Black Flamingo one night and he was playing as he plays, just every great song ever made. And I remember thinking to myself, like, why am I at my age still trying to like break ground with new exciting music when there's all this Stevie Wonder and Michael Jackson and Prince to be played. <laughs> I recently opened a bar a couple years ago. The Friend. At the, the Friend Bar in yeah. Silver Lake, and I started playing my version of what I think is like, just like, these are songs that I think are great. Some are new, some are old, but these are songs that I know are, like, this is not cool, cutting-edge underground music. Like, these are songs that will make you dance, that people love, that are not alienating. Everything from Oliver Dollar to Fleetwood Mac to you know, M and A or however you pronounce it. I mean, like just yeah. things, you know, things that are good. Songs yeah. that are good. Yeah. I, I feel like people like it. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> and it's been great. Yeah. But it's also made it a little bit more difficult when I do get like an underground booking or something like that or when I play on Holy Ship or at Heart or something like that where I feel like I'm not currently at this moment like on the cutting edge of dance music.
But like, what is the like? It's not my place to be on the cutting edge of dance music. You know? Well, you kind of, I was like saying, like, <laughs> you kind of mentioned the whole hip hop thing. Like, you literally re- were recording demos with all these crazy hip hop guys, and then right. like, at the ground zero of so many other clubs, and then also at the ground zero of like Banana Split and the Do Over, and you know, the, the Holy Ship. That your whole life has been one ultimate like ultimate moment after another. You're right. So eventually it's like, yeah, I just want to go home and listen to Fleetwood Mac and Steely Dan. It like, is, because it it's is. Great. So there, that's actually an interesting point with yeah. Steely Dan, was I bring them up all the time as this like favorite band. And I'm like, but when is the last time I sat, I was like, there's whole Steely Dan's albums I've never heard. It's like I've heard every single song Young Thug ever made. Yeah. But, there's like, <laughs> but there's Steely Dan songs that I've never heard. And I sat there one night and I downloaded like their first six albums mm-hmm. and I sat and listened to it and I was like, fuck, this is fucking great music. You might be the only person, one of the few people in 2010 with the Venn diagram of Young Thug and Silly Dan overlap. I, I just wanted to point that out for just, 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 to, just to kind of illustrate how much of it. Well, it's like I was are. saying earlier, like I feel like there's only three kinds of music, like good, bad, and okay. I say country and western. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got both that from, kinds, country yeah, and western. Yeah, I got that from DJ Harvey, by the way. But yeah, <laughs> no, he got that from the Blues Brothers. Oh, shit, okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just got one up. Meta, very meta. When we started Banana Split, uh-huh. I've now been doing my blog for a couple years. I'm learning how to share DJ booths and be friends with people. Because okay. it turns out that that's how you get people to like you, is by not saying, no, you can't sit with me. But you're a mad um, likable guy in real life. Thank so, you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I always liked everyone, but it was more like, yeah, let's all have dinner after we're done DJing and talk about what we did, uh, but okay, don't okay. come and try to DJ with me, because like, this is my time. Yeah. But that was the style in New York, because where everyone's fighting for gigs, and it's like, God forbid a guy plays a half hour and he's going to play for a hundred bucks less than you and the promoter likes him. Mm-hmm. Now you're fucked. The Chuck chill out syndrome. Yeah. The Chuck chill out syndrome. <laughs> but also Chuck chill out should have the goddamn gig. He's Chuck chill out. Yeah, you know what you I go. mean? Like right, the right. fact that he wanted my gig was both horrifying and flattering because this is a man who was DJing when I was five years old. Yeah. Like he's part of hip hop history. Like the like Beastie a Boys rap about him on License to Ill. Yeah. You know, like he was there. He was the so beginning. there. Yeah, in the beginning. <laughs> With no disrespect to Chuck Chill Out, but I felt like it was almost upsetting. It was one of the reasons why I was like, I need to go back to L.A. and take my talents here because like, I certainly should not be taking money out of Chuck Chill Out's pockets. Like I've never, to this day, never met Chuck Chill Out. Oh, you never met him? No, no, no. Oh, okay. But like, I'm the, say if you the promoter around. used to always say that. He would be like, yo, Chuck Chill Out was here. Was here. He's, you know, he's down to do it for 200, but like, don't worry, I'm not going to fire you. And I was just like, it really stuck in my mind. Like, how is that? Yeah. Like, just give it to Chuck Chill Out. You think he was give him twice you? as much you as... You think he was fucking with you? No, it was absolutely real. Oh, it was real, okay. And there was plenty of other... I mean, like, there were other DJs that were a little more vocal about it. Like, I remember Jazzy Joyce saying to me, like, I should have this gig. Because no one knew who I was. Yeah. And, and I didn't know who I was. And this made you kind of like, I need to get out of here and back to LA. Well, no, because it was so fun and awesome. But because of what I'd been able to do in New York amongst the Chuck Chill Outs and Jazzy Joyces, that surely in LA amongst the nobody and nobody, like there, there was plenty of people in LA doing stuff. Obviously J-Rock, one of the greatest DJs of all time, Babu, the whole beat, beat junkies, junkies and, yeah, yeah. and all that. But that was not what I was doing. Yeah. Like that was very specific stuff and I was clearly not going to be stepping on their toes. Yeah. I thought I could come and do something where it was my city and I felt like because of that knowledge and what I'd learned in New York, I could come here to do something on my own, which ended up being Banana Split, I think. So for our, our listeners, Banana Split was a very formative party. It was your partners were Stevie Oki, DJ AM, yourself, and... Uh, the Cobra Snake and uh, BPM Magazine. BPM Magazine. Okay. So tell us about the first night you guys do it. The way that that party came about was basically <laughs> after getting his surgery... 
and dating Nicole Richie, AM became like a tabloid celebrity. And he was now a Las Vegas DJ and he had a faux hawk and he had a pink Lacoste shirt. For a guy who had been fat and angry his whole life was now like really fucking just out there killing it. He was breaking records for the amount of money DJs were getting in Vegas. I mean, I remember his residency at Body English. It was uh, $2,500 on Saturday, $1,500 on Sunday, and he would go every week and do that. And it was like, yo, can you believe like, that I'm getting this money? Mm-hmm. And now that's like barely like the bare minimum that you're getting in Vegas. Like That's like you're, like you're the opener if you're getting $2,500 in Vegas. Mm-hmm. I would love to go. If anyone wants me to open for anyone in Vegas, I'll gladly And everyone wants to open up. Me um, <laughs> open up for Mike B. I would gladly do that too. Yeah, I'll exactly. do my 30-minute reggae set and play 50 Cent. Yeah. <laughs> But um, yeah, somehow I've managed to keep my rates, you know, very low. Um, <laughs> but so, uh, mm-hmm. um, so, but the way Banana Split worked was after a, a couple years of this. I mean, AM was always a raver. He was always excited about music, mm-hmm. and I think when he and Steve Aoki met, and he went to Cinespace Tuesdays and saw what was going on there, and there was this kind of new era of like models, like hot eighteen-year-olds that were like thrift store shopping, and like listening to Peaches and getting crazy. And like Steve Aoki was kind of running that scene in LA. And it was really exciting. And he got there and I feel that he was a little bit regarded as like, oh, what's this guy doing here from Us Weekly? Like like in our like cool scene. And he, not only was he one of the baddest DJs to ever do it, but he was also a very like, if you don't like me, like I'm going to make you like me kind of guy. So he would start coming in and DJing. So he would get on after Steve Aoki and like do his AM stuff. And he was doing it with Daft Punk and Baltimore club and Mastercraft and justice and all this stuff. And people were like, okay, like we love this guy. And we were all really excited about all this music. Like all this stuff that was coming out in 2005, 2006 from Ed Banger records to like switch solid groove, Mastercraft, Baltimore Club, you know, just all that kind of what what would become known as Bloghouse, which was just kind of a blanket term for like internet remixes and stuff. And he was like, I wish there was a party where I could just play this kind of music. And I was like, not to be bring up the obvious, but you own a nightclub. Oh, he owned a nightclub. Yeah, he owned LAX nightclub. Okay. That was AM's club. And uh-huh. I was like, you own a club. Like, you know. Yeah. And for some reason at that time, for years, like for my whole life, there was always this thing where you can't do a weekly on Sundays in LA. It's like, it just doesn't work. It's not done. And he's like, well, we can certainly have it on Sundays because it's closed every Sunday. He wasn't in it to make money because he's already making millions of dollars DJing. Uh-huh. Steve Aoki was doing his parties. He was doing good. Steve. I was producing TV shows and doing good. So it was literally a thing where it's like, we're all going to DJ for free uh-huh. and we're going to put a keg on the dance floor and give away beer until it's gone. So that way people get there at 10. And they basically switched up the door policy. Whereas it was a bottle sales table, like Von Dutch kind of club. (laughs) Danny Carbajal, our our doorman coach, basically he was told, if people don't know why they're here or aren't like Dim Mac people, like just don't let them in. Like, so if a guy showed up in a dress shirt, like I want to buy table, like it was just no go. (laughs) How did they go? I want to buy table. Okay, just make yeah. sure. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. So they, they they weren't you know fresh from the hundreds or you know diamond or turntable lab. Exactly. Sure, didn't do what I was. And so yeah. that was a, I mean that was really an exciting time because that's the reason that the Black Eyed Peas became what they became. LMFAO was literally birthed out of that party. We were the first people to have, for better or worse, 
I mean, great now, obviously, like Lady Gaga. She's yeah. going to win like an Oscar. Oscar this yeah, year. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. She, like her first show was at Banana Split. Holy um, fuck, I had wait. Wiz Khalifa <laughs> at Banana Split in 2008. Uh-huh. That was his first LA show at Wale. Because uh-huh. I also had like weird connections. You know, my friends in New York were like signing these guys. Like, I got this new guy, Wiz Khalifa. Like, can he come do your party with DJ AM You're in like, LA? Sure, whatever. He had a song where he rapped over Alice DJ. Yes. Yeah. Holy shit. And he I came and that, performed dude. that. It was called Say Yeah. So yes, you, okay. exactly. Oh, wow, okay. Yeah, there's pictures. He's got like one tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> do you see him around? If you do, he doesn't recognize him. I don't know if I've been around him. I'm sure if I said to him, hey, do you remember your first... I'm sure he remembers it was his first ever LA show. Yeah. But like... He's not like, yo, I'm Mike not D. so much in Wiz Khalifa's orbit. Well, I'm certain he doesn't yeah, what about remember Sh- my name. Are you in Shaq's orbit still? No. No, no, no. no. okay. Again, again, I mean, like, wishful thinking, wishful thinking. Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah, in not? the event that I'm ever seated at a dinner table with either of these guys, okay. I could maybe feel comfortable to say, by the way, you may not remember, uh-huh. dot, dot, dot. dot, dot but dot, I'm dot, rarely, I don't like to talk to anyone who I have to remind them why we know each other. Yeah. Well, again, <laughs> again this, this thing I keep remembering, you're very low-key about a lot of things, so. Well, as someone who's constantly reminded by other people why we know each other in awkward ways, I just try not to do it to other people. Oh. Because like sometimes you you know you meet everyone in the dark and you're high and it's like the middle of the night and you don't always necessarily share a precious moment. Like sometimes like your most memorable moment is another person's like, you know, you never know. Maybe they're trying to get laid or like their girlfriend's cheating. People have other stuff going on. You don't always remember everything. But I also remember being a 22-year-old who was like, hey, man, we've met like five times. Like, why don't you remember me? He's like, oh, yeah, because you're a fucking rock star. You got other shit to do. So you were talking about the whole, like, mania of... Uh, oh, banana, banana split. split. Well, so- the Cobra Snake and digital photography and party photography, I think, was a very important part of that. It's like I was okay. saying before, like, I was very accomplished. Uh-huh. But so what? Like, there was no evidence of it. Like, there was no pictures. There was no videos. There was no YouTube. There was nothing. But at that time, it was the very beginning of YouTube, music blogs, and party photography. So basically, we were in a lot of ways imitating what we were seeing on video that Ed Banger was doing in Paris, which was that people were just like rammed up against the booth and going nuts and acting like they were at a Metallica show, but they were listening to, they were playing new exciting dance music, and it was stuff that you hadn't heard. Like it was mostly. Up until then, you had to play the songs that were on the radio or that were big club records. But people were now coming out and they just wanted to hear like exciting, aggressive, like banging new dance sounds, which was really cool. So every week, I mean, me and Steve and and AM would be sending stuff to each other. Like, if you heard this, you got to check this out. Like, this guy's doing this. And it was it was an exciting time. And I was opening. It was really, you know, their party and their idea. They were like mainstays in the scene. I was planning on retiring from DJing because I was going to become a TV producer. <laughs> Again, back to the Snoop Dogg father. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, hey, man, fucking, yeah, I'll do it. Literally, I mean, it overlapped where we were like shot like some B-roll footage like for that show in a banana split. Like, <laughs> <That's> amazing. <laughs> amazing, dude. <laughs> so I had to wear my sweater to banana split. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, there was one very like specific night where, because a lot of people were like, well, who the fuck is Mike B and why does he get to be on the flyer, you know? But I was playing from 10 to 11. Well, I would play from 10 until whenever one of those guys showed up yeah. and then they would play until they figured out who they were going to fuck and then that was that. Yeah. And then once we'd been going for like six, seven months and it was really cracking, there was one night where it was just me and AM and maybe them jeans or somebody. And and I said to, to AM, I was like, yo, man, like, let me play the last 40 minutes. 
Like we've been doing this for six months for free. Like, let me shine. And he's like, you got this? And I was like, I got this. He's like, I can get out of here early? I was like, you got it. He's like, word. So it was just one of those things where it was just like, you know, like when the moment comes, like, will you rise to the occasion? And I did. I remember sitting back there with the Serato and getting my prepare window all ready and like, how am I going to do this? I'm going to 140 BPMs and get down here and go up here and go uh, 40 minutes to like finally show this room of hipsters like, like why I'm supposed to be here. And... It definitely was like I went like blind shark attack style, but like I just remember like that it was like like everyone was like holy shit like it was really like I rose to the occasion, I did some crazy shit, I did like every trick I knew, I did every cool mix I knew, I played like reggae for the first time ever at that party, and I got it all in in forty minutes, and then like from then on, you know, I got on the Cobra Snake that week, and then it was a thing, and so then it became a thing where like if you couldn't afford Steve Aoki or AM, you would. Oh, there you go. Get me. There you go. Once again. There was pictures of me on the Cobra Snake all the time, and people were giving me free T-shirts, and it was uh, was everything I dreamed it could be. Yeah. Well, for for (laughs) our listeners that that don't know, the Cobra Snake, what's your definition of the Cobra Snake? The Cobra Snake, I wouldn't say that he's like the OG party photographer. I think, to be fair, there was a party photographer at Cheetah's, but it was like, you know, he's taking pictures of hot chicks and Funkmaster Flex. Like, there's a couple pictures of me with a goatee, (laughs) you know, in a DJ booth, but it's not very exciting. Uh Uh-huh. Cobra Snake was really doing, I think, a version of kind of like what Bronx was doing from last night's party, uh-huh, okay. um, which was the New York kind of version of just taking pictures of just it would be like the whole night. Yeah. Basically, it would be like, I'm getting ready. I'm hanging out with these chicks and like we're eating here and now we're at the party and now we're at the DJ booth and people were waiting to get their picture taken. They weren't on their phone too much because like yeah. they were still weren't smartphones. Yeah. So like. You know, as soon as that guy pulled his camera out, like you were sticking your tongue out and you're flipping them off, you're pulling your dress up. And it was like, it became a thing where you wanted to get on, you know, if you went to the party, you wanted to get your picture taken and you wanted to go on the next day and have your picture and put it on your MySpace. Yeah. And then so then uh, this was documenting this crazy banana split scene. Yeah. And well, it gave, it just made it so as opposed to like everything I had done in New York, like. Now everything I was doing was hyper-documented because I was recording the DJ sets, posting them on my blog. The Cobra Snake was taking pictures. People now all over the world were able to, for the first time, go to a party without going. Like it used to be like, yo, that shit was so crazy. I can never explain to you how awesome that party was. You really should have been there. But now it was like, oh, you didn't show up. Like... Here's what you missed. Yeah. Wait, so do you think you guys were literally the first ones to ever... So, like, again, you go on Instagram, you go live stream, you can watch things from your house now. Were you guys perhaps the first people to ever document a party without... And like you just said, you could be there without being there, you think? I don't think we were the first, but I think it was really relevant and it dictated a lot. Like, by the time that I got to go tour Europe for the first time in 2009, I was being brought out to play at parties that were essentially... Uh, trying to replicate their version of what, you know, like I was getting there and either people were like wearing all like hundreds t-shirts and wanted me to play like the stuff that I was doing on hundreds mixtapes or I was getting there and everyone's wearing neon dim Mac hoodies and wants me, you know, like it was just like, was it goofy or kind of, or kind of or cute? Or great. Or? I mean, I'm touring Europe, you know, yeah, <laughs> you're like, like, you wear what you want. I don't care. Just giving them euros. Yeah. 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 I mean, I mean, I I mean, to me, like, I don't know, there is no, if, if people are, as long as people are dancing and having a good time and the music is good, like, I, I, I mean, I never felt like it was goofy. Like, I've definitely, 
The only stuff that was goofy was like, honestly, like places like in America more so. <laughs> like that was what I knew I didn't want to do. Like when I was a working touring DJ and no disrespect to any of these cities, but playing in places that were hiring DJs, but still wanting to dictate what was being played, mm. which is why is one of the reasons that I don't play in Las Vegas, besides the fact that they have no interest, but like <laughs> why I don't really pursue stuff like that is because I really don't want to play anywhere that's like, they must have me because they know who I am and they know what I do and they want me to play. Yeah. I'm famous for saying things to promoters like, I'm not the idiot that booked me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> because it's just like, just you know, if you want someone that's just going to do whatever you want, just get... The local guy or somebody. Yeah, yeah, just get whatever. Like, why are you flying me to Oklahoma City to, like, not enjoy what I'm doing when, like, this is clearly what I do? Yeah. Like, go, like, listen to my mixes. Like, this is what I'm, you know. So, well, you know, this isn't really what we do here. I'm like, well, I didn't give me $1,000 in a fucking hotel room and a flight to come here, you know? Like, yeah, buy this is, I wasn't like, bring me to Oklahoma City. Like, you brought me here. Yeah. I'm excited to be here. This is, you know, where the outsiders were. <laughs> like, I, like, I remember thinking that. Like, this is S.E. Hinton territory. This is exciting. <laughs> you know, I love the silver spin you put on that. Like, yeah, I'm going to get yelled at by the promoter. But, hey, the outsiders. Here. Well, you just got to know. Like, I just never took it seriously because I was always like, again, like, I'm not the idiot that booked me. Like, I'm never phoning it in. Like, if I'm ever DJing, I'm doing the best job that I can while still representing myself. I'm never going to play songs that I don't like or do things that I don't want to do because that's not why I stopped making TV shows. Yeah. If I wanted to like make a bunch of money to do things that I hate, I could do that. Yeah, you can make it, you know. If there's Tyler a huge Perry hit movies. song that everyone has to hear that I don't like, I, you have to just make up for it by like your set of the things that you do like being so good that no one notices that you didn't play that song that everyone wants to hear. Yeah, you know? that, that means double down on the Fleetwood Max, Seely Dan. Double down yeah. on the Fleetwood yeah. Max. Not Mo Bamba. We're talking Aja and Black Cow and Pencil exactly. Logic. Yeah. I did play Mo Bamba at midnight on New Year's Eve, I will say. Oh, that was your midnight you New Year's Eve? Okay. Were you at the, uh, the friend bar for New Year's Eve? I was at the friend bar for New Year's okay. Eve. Me and, me and Waldo did that. Oh, my God. And uh, Okay, well, Waldo is a... There's no other man like Waldo on this planet. For there is no other man like Waldo. So the friend bar, I've, I've been dying to talk about that. Uh, what is this project? And uh, Not project, it's a bar. I've been there, I played it. Awesome little vibe. Um, how, yeah, was this kind of like your, your next chapter in life? Or just it is. No, it was... It came along at a really kind of cool time where I didn't know what I was I, I knew I wanted to do something I'd never done before and I felt like I'd never had my own label I never really threw my own party it was always with other people I never kind of had my own thing I knew I was looking for something and randomly my dear friend Jared Meisler who's a very successful bar owner restaurateur just called me and said hey we're opening a bar in Silver Lake and I'd love you to be a part of it and I asked my accountant, he said, don't do it. <laughs> and then I was like, I'm in. Okay. I mean, it's two blocks from my house. It's a hundred person room. It's got a very simple DJ setup that's on the floor. It's beautiful. And thank uh, you. Yeah. Um, and I, I love it in there. I mean, I just, uh, I honestly, I like playing there a lot. People like going there, which is cool. Yeah. I feel like you know it's good by the people who come there and where they come, like Boys Noise has come in and DJed for three hours unannounced on a Saturday. And it's not like he comes in there and does his Boys Noise thing. Like he comes in there and plays like Prince and Daft Punk and Michael Jackson and stuff. And girls are like, are you going to play Drake? And he's like, yeah, yeah, sure. It's like, well, there's a lot of people who have become festival headliners who come from a real DJ background and who have that in them. And I think The Friend is a great place because we just have a built-in crowd and there's, 
no door policy and it's free. We never charge a cover and it's always rocking in there that it's, you can kind of do whatever you want. So a lot of guys who, a lot of people will come from headlining a festival and as opposed to like having an orgy or whatever they're entitled to, they come to the friend bar and we'll play like five or six records and have a drink. Like Fisher came to the friend bar, like straight from his headlining set at hard last year, which I thought was really crazy. Cause I was like, when I got there, I was seeing his like Insta feed of him playing for like 50,000 people. And then an hour later, he's like next to me in the DJ booth, smoking a joint, like not, still like sweaty yeah. from hard. Fest. Yeah, I, was just like, I was like, this yeah. is how I know that like my bar is like what I wanted it to be. Because Boys Noise and Fisher and these guys are all here, yeah. and they and they like and, and they're on they, your terms, and they could be fucking whoever they want. Yeah, all right, all right, yeah. Well, also yeah. they're there on your own terms. Like the, I want to come here, I want to do my thing, and it's not. Like you it said, is the well, whole, it's kind of open. Honestly, it's yeah. I've never done anything like it. The first few weeks we were open, I didn't even tell people I was a part of it. Like I was kind of there, and then it would kind of randomly happen. Like I would be out with some friends, and they'd be like, "Well, where should we go now?" I'd be like, well, "We can go to my bar," and they'd be like. What the fuck you mean? You go to your Is bar. the name of the place? Like, no, it's called. Yeah, I was yeah. like, no. Well, I actually, I opened a bar, and they're like, "What are you talking about?" And then we would get there, and there's like a line outside, and like Eric Andre and John Hammer out front trying to get in, and I'm like walking in people <laughs> from Holy Ship and stuff. <laughs> Which usual. was like, yeah. yeah, it's like that's why typical Wednesday. That's night. why you own a bar. Yeah, yeah. And it's been great. I mean, we just had our two year anniversary. Like great people come and play all the time. Like Jeremy Soul played with me the first Saturday of the year, so we got off to like a really strong start. People just like to play there. Like Future Classic did a party there recently. Like Flume did his Grammy party there when he won. Wow! And it's just a small, little, tiny room. Yeah. We have it's like almost two- the size we're recording. Almost. Exactly. Yeah. 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 It's a, yeah. We have like a hundred person capacity. Yeah. We have two or three bartenders. Yeah. Someone checking IDs. Yeah. I remember I had an excellent Fernet cocktail there. Oh yeah. Yeah, dude. And like we I, do, we serve lovely cocktails. Dude, I was like, and you know, being from Frisco, like we are Fernet all the time, and that was like, holy shit, that was excellent, dude. I'm happy to hear. Yeah, that. I still remember that. And it was like it was a while ago when uh, I was there last and stuff man so this is kind of be your next phase and is this kind of give you more kind of ammunition to kind of maybe start doing more things outside of uh, your I comfort don't zone no honestly I mean it's like you said earlier where I've got like there's been so much awesome shit yeah I feel like when I was in my 20s and early 30s and just trying to prove myself and just like hoping you know when you do music and you're trying to be a creative person you just hope that something that you do doesn't suck and that other people like it and that maybe you are lucky enough to have some sort of impact on the climate of music and the world. But also you don't know when it's happening. Like you don't know when the butterfly effect is happening. When Red Foo hit me up and said like, yo man, can I come through your crib and you can maybe like show me some shit about house music. Like I don't really know a lot about it. Like I want to start like producing some dance music. I wasn't like, well, surely in two years, like we will all have to, hear these LMFAO songs. You never really know what to, I'm not saying that that wouldn't have happened without me. I'm just saying there was a day where I sat there with Red Foo and explained to him like, this you is know, a grid. the ins and outs of electronic music and like what was cool and what was not and what was this and what was that. And I, I was the first person who had the demo for I'm in Miami, bitch. And I remember being like, I don't know about this song. <laughs> But that's why I'm not an A&R. Yeah. Clearly, I was wrong. Like, the world loved it. Yeah. And I played it myself many times. Uh-huh. And you just never know. Like, when Will I Am would show up to the party, like, we thought it was cool, some of us, but we didn't know that the next Black Eyed Peas album would be what it was and that it would change urban radio and that all of a sudden, like, Noriega would be making records with Mastercraft and, like, all this stuff yeah. that was happening. Everything is 122, yeah, you just, 122 BPM in the exactly, next five years. Yeah, you have no idea what's, like, that that's what's going to happen. So definitely, I think as I went on, 
I maybe started to like go back into my turtle shell a little because I was like, well, I maybe need to be a little bit more selective about like, you know, who you tell the game about and who you sell the game to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think this whole conversation we're talking about mentorship and how it's kind of benefited you. That's something that you kind of still believe in that maybe to pass the torch on to somebody else. And Absolutely. Kind of- it's just hard these oh, okay. days because at the time that I was mentored by stretch, like, that was a truly unique position that I was in. Like nobody else at that time was getting that knowledge. Like no one else had access to his computer. Like no one else was going with him to those gigs. So like that experience is solely mine. Whereas now like someone cannot know about house music one day and then the next day own every great house record ever made and it can cost them zero dollars. And that's not, to take away from that experience. It's just that, like, what is there to really mentor? I've always thought, like, it'd be so cool to find someone who would be, like, what I was to stretch. Not that I am stretch, but, like, someone who could, like... To scale. Help me with my shit and then do something cool and then, like, help me in 10 years. And it's a little bit harder. There's a lot of young kids out there that are killing it. The difference is they have fucking five times as many followers as I do. Like, what am I going to teach them, you know? Uh-huh. Is, that so, <laughs> is that kind of the name of the game then and your experiences? There was a time where my social media was considered very impressive. <laughs> and, like, it just stayed at that point. And then now it's, like, it's really, it's unimpressive, I think, compared to uh, most of the world. Well, like, dude, you just want, you did, you know, holy shit. Sure. You do the do-over, you have a club, you have all these crazy stripes. I don't... I I, think it's, I wouldn't trade it for anything. I would hope not. Except for Damn, dude. maybe you know some more money yeah. would be nice. But you know, I made my choices. Yeah. I also I don't go to the gym and I haven't gotten new press shots in like five years. Well, <laughs> it's not a complaint by any means. Yeah, Everything yeah. I've ever done in music and otherwise has been because I love to do it and I want to do it and I need to do it. So when it comes to like social media engagement and like putting a question mark at the end of everything that I post online. Like, (laughs) you know, if you say like my new records coming out, period, no one gives a shit. But if you're like my new records coming out, do you think it's better than the Beatles? Like that, then it's just like, I'm not going to ask a fucking stupid question like that. Of course it's not better than the Beatles. (laughs) Also like, I don't like, I don't, what should I have for lunch today? Quesadillas or sandwich? Like I just, a sandwich. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. No, obvious question. 364 yeah. comments, but it's yeah. like, here's my new DJ mix. It's like 100 likes, 20 listens. Uh-huh. But you, but you <laughs> and I can't you? do the numbers fudging. Like, I'll, like, I can't do things that makes the numbers fake because if it's 64 listens, then it's 64 listens. Then I know that, like, at that week, there are 64 people that actually give a shit what I did. Yeah. That number has come down a long way from the 10,000 from a few years ago. I would rather know that than like have a PR agency and agents and like click farms and like whatever have and have my numbers looking great, but know inside that like, like when you see something that has 20,000 listens and no comments, it's just, you know, uh, you <laughs> no one's of, listening to your music, dude. Like, <laughs> are you like so kind of, um, critical of this because you see it you've seen firsthand you've seen these people firsthand you kind of seen the experiences firsthand that's why you're like i can't do that i just want to know what the facts are mm. you know like i don't know that it's necessarily good no it for is. me in my life no, but it's good right. for my spirit and yeah. my brain uh-huh. like i just like i really don't exist well in like f- fakeness and lies i try to never tell a lie 
I never tell people that I can't make it. I tell people <laughs> that I'm not going to make it. Gonna... <laughs> you know what I mean? Because it's like, I can come. Yeah. But I'm just, I'm not going to. Yeah. You said, you, you said you'll come to this. <laughs> yeah. And you exactly. came. Yeah. But um, we're talking about, oh, I'll come at 12. Yeah. But exactly. Yeah. yeah you're but if, like, out, if yeah. I was going to flake on you because for whatever reason, I would say to you, hey, man, like, I'm not going to be there. <laughs> I'm not going to say, hey, look, something came up. Anytime someone's telling you why they can't be there, it's a lie. Because who cares why you can't be there? The important thing is you're not going to be there. Uh, <laughs> I like that. That's a good jab. I try to apply that to everything. Like sometimes I make a DJ mix just for myself because it's hard for me to digest, particularly rap music, in a non DJ presented format. Legit. So yeah. even with like new down south rap, like I ha- I'll pick like the 20, 30 songs I really like and I'll make a mix for myself to listen to because it's the only way I'm going to like be able to absorb the songs. And so I will take those which are not what I'm, you know, I have no business posting them on the internet. But what I'll do is I'll put them on my SoundCloud and I have no promotion. Like I won't talk about it on Instagram. I don't put it on my Facebook. I don't put it anywhere. Just put it up on SoundCloud. And then 24 hours later, I'll look at it and it's like 120 plays. So to me, that means 120 times like somebody went to my SoundCloud on purpose and listen to the new thing that I posted because they give a shit, which makes me, so it's like, okay, without all of the bullshit, without any promotion, without anything, this is how much people care about me today. Well, uh, no, I, well, it's, it's realistic. I guess. And there are ways of pushing it. Like, yes, like you should, like when I do something really cool, yeah. you know, like when I do a mix for Holy Ship or yeah. like whatever it is and there's beautiful artwork and there's a reason that it's being done. Yeah. Like, yeah, I'll promote it and everyone should listen to this and then that'll get like four or 5,000 plays yeah. and a bunch of comments. But it, I like to know like how many people just go to my SoundCloud to see what I'm doing. Mm, that's real. It's about 120. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you've been kind of dropping all these jewels. Give us one. You know, there's like a, a uh, Mike B rule of thumb for life. Give give us one more. A this rule out. of thumb for life. Yeah, that's a tough one. Yeah. I don't know. I don't really have. A, I mean, I just like I just I try to always tell the truth. Yeah. I try to remember things as it happened, uh-huh. and I I try to really appreciate it. Like yeah. I think almost to a fault. Oh. Don't be mad at people that are getting money. <laughs> I think it's a jewel. You know, because you never know when maybe they'll want to share it with you. There you go. Oh, my God. And dude, speaking of sharing, thank you for all this time. All these jewels you gave us, my man. Absolutely. I hope that it uh, makes dude, sense in some way. I knew it was going to be very good. This exceeded my expectations. Yeah, I mean, we never even uh, talked about house music, so we'll do that next time. We didn't even talk about that. Holy shit. Do-over, 15th, pools. Oh, pools with Morse code. Yeah. Uh, we didn't talk about um, you growing up with bands, playing bands. We didn't, uh, we didn't talk about a lot of things. A man. rich life in music. I know. Well, it was kind of cool that you probably have another like, 40, 50 years in it. So there you exactly. go. Exactly. So season three will come. We'll come. Oh, shit. Uh, my man, Mike B. <laughs> Give it up for Mike B. Right? Thank Mike you. B. Thank LA's prodigal son. <laughs> Damn. Thank you so much, dude. What on, man?